Good afternoon, everybody. We're going to get started here. Thank you all for attending Cato's Institute's Hill Briefing entitled The BEPS Project, the OECD Tax Policy and U.S. Competitiveness. Um, the origins of this line are unclear to me, and it may have been popularized by Jimmy Buffett, but I'll tell it as I first heard it. Uh, a reporter asked a congressman, what should be done to combat ignorance and apathy? To which the congressman replied, I don't know, and I don't care. So this is an issue, the best project that has come up a lot in the tax policy community, but for everyone else, it's been pretty easy to ignore. But don't ignore this one anymore. Um, the consequences are pretty serious. So we have a lot of speakers today, so I'll briefly introduce them, and we can get started. Uh, to my right, Daniel Mitchell is a senior fellow at Cato who specializes in fiscal policy, particularly tax reform, international tax competition, and the economic burden of government spending. Prior to joining Cato, Mitchell was a senior fellow with the Heritage Foundation and an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee. He's been published in numerous outlets, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. He's appeared on all the major networks as an internationally known expert on these issues. He earned a PhD in economics from George Mason University. Uh, David Burton is a senior fellow in economic policy at the Heritage Foundation, focusing on tax matters, securities law, entitlement, and regulatory and administrative law. Burton was general counsel at the National Small Business Association for two years before joining Heritage's Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies in 2013. He previously was chief financial officer and general counsel of the startup Alliance for Retirement Prosperity, a conservative alternative to AARP. Burton received a Juris Doctor degree from the University of Maryland School of Law. He also holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics from the University of Chicago. Brian Garst is Director of Policy and Communications for the Center for Freedom and Prosperity, a nonprofit organization created to educate lawmakers on the benefits of market liberalization. The top projects at CFMP are the Coalition for Tax Competition, which is fighting to preserve jurisdictional tax competition, fiscal sovereignty, and financial privacy, and the Double Taxation Working Group, which is committed to abolishing the capital gains, dividends, and death taxes. Brian has an MA in political science from the University of West Florida. Uh, and finally, uh, W. Gavin Eakins is a research economist at the Texas Foundation, or the Tax Foundation. His research interests include tax policy, public choice, public finance, and game theory. He is also interested in analyzing how the human brain evaluates taxes and subsidies under different frames. He has taught experimental economics, computational economics, and various levels of microeconomics at both Emory University and George Mason University, where he too earned his PhD in economics. So let's give a warm welcome to Dan Mitchell. Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, my job is basically to be a moderator, but since Peter already introduced everyone, I don't really have a, a whole lot to say about these issues. Although, I didn't know that you were into game theory. The former finance minister of Greece was into game theory, and he didn't do a very good job. So, Gavin, I hope you have a, a different perspective on some of these issues. What I want to do is simply set the stage uh, for this discussion with a couple of slides. And how do I... Uh, is this already on and ready to work here? Let's click and see what happens. Can you hit slideshow somewhere that might? Uh... Well, we, we have a technical expert coming up who's going to show us how to get this thing moving. Uh, but, but what I want to do in my brief introductory remarks is simply state that there's a lot of very detailed, complex stuff in this OECD BEPS project. BEPS stands for Base Erosion and Profit Shifting. Uh, but ultimately, all you really need to understand uh, 
is uh, that we have a very bad tax system, and so to the extent that U.S. lawmakers are concerned that we might somehow be losing corporate tax revenue from the United States, there are two reasons why that could be happening. First, we're one of the few countries in the world with a worldwide tax system. And what worldwide tax means is that we don't just tax the income that U.S. taxpayers earn inside the United States. We also are very unusual in the world in that we also try to tax or impose taxes on the income that's earned in other jurisdictions. But of course, other jurisdictions already tax that income. Uh, and so having a worldwide tax system, in effect, is a form of double taxation. In theory, you get a credit for the taxes you pay to other jurisdictions. But then this brings up the second problem that we have. Uh, this is a chart showing the US corporate tax rate and the average corporate tax rate in other developed nations around the world. Uh, we have the highest corporate tax rate not just of any developed country, but of any country, period. Sometimes people say, no, no, it's higher in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, but no, that's only a severance tax on oil uh, uh, companies. It's not a generalized corporate income tax. So among all countries in the world, we have the highest corporate income tax, and we have a worldwide tax system that unambiguously is the most onerous in the world. So of course, if you are a US multinational trying to compete in global markets, you have every possible incentive to have as much of your economic activity outside the US and to defer any repatriation of profits to America. So to the extent that there actually is a concern that somehow corporate tax revenues aren't flowing into the Treasury, and I confess that I never lose a moment's sleep about the thought that the Treasury's not collecting enough money, but if you are one of those people who's worried about that, then we should fix the two very big warts that we have in our corporate tax system. Lower the corporate tax rate and follow the rest of the world in shifting to territorial taxation instead of worldwide taxation. And these problems, to the extent that they even exist, will disappear. But that's the US perspective. What's wrong with the American tax system? Now let's sort of wed this to the OECD's base erosion and profit shifting. Because of course, the OECD's BEPS project is in effect the same concerns that US lawmakers have. Oh, we're not collecting enough money because somehow multinationals might be uh, uh, moving income elsewhere, and it, uh, it applies it to the entire world. Well, let's look at a chart. This is not a very clear chart, but it shows corporate tax revenues as a share of GDP uh, over like the last six years. And it looks like, oh my god, there's a crisis. Governments aren't collecting nearly as much corporate tax revenue uh, as, as, as maybe they should. Well, this is a chart from the OECD website. It's looking at the last six years. What if we look at the last several decades? All of a sudden, the picture is a lot different. There's a trend of corporate tax revenues as a share of GDP going up in OECD countries. So the notion that there's somehow some big erosion of corporate tax receipts in OECD nations, there's no factual basis for it. And so here's really the bottom line, and I'll, 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 this is all I really need to say and all you really need to understand, although the other three speakers are gonna say things that are worth listening to as well. The OECD BEPS project is nothing but an effort by an international bureaucracy representing high tax governments to figure out how they can extract more money from the business community. They want to extract more money from the business community on a worldwide basis, but you'll hear from our other speakers 
This will have especially negative effects on U.S. competitiveness and U.S. multinationals. So with that, let me turn it over to David Burton. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I thought I would sort of walk through some of the issues and, and how the international tax system works and start at the beginning. In any uh, tax system, whether it's a worldwide tax system like the United States or a territorial system, you need to determine whether the income is earned within the taxing jurisdiction, in our case the U.S., or outside the taxing jurisdiction. And that means you have to do a, a number of things. You have to source the income, determine where the income came from. You have to allocate expenses between the United States and abroad. And then with respect to transactions between, the, in our case, the U.S. parent and in foreign uh, subsidiaries, you have to have rules that govern the prices at which goods change hands from the foreign subsidiary when they're sold to the U.S. or when they're sold from the U.S. parent to the foreign subsidiary. And those are called intercompany pricing rules. There are entire armies of lawyers, accountants, and economists employed fighting with the IRS over intercompany pricing rules. They're extremely uh, complex in practice, although it's probably one of the shorter paragraphs in, in the Internal Revenue Code. It basically, Section 482 just says uh, the IRS has the authority to make adjustments if they think it's reasonable. Now, in that context, you have the OECD BEPS project. It is just a project, but it, uh, from a, a, the OECD, which is an international multilateral organization, but it, it, the OECD has demonstrated in the past that it has tre tremendous ability to ultimately get things done once it starts down a particular road. Um, <clears throat> and the OECD BEPS project has 15 action items. And a number of them, I think, are relatively benign, but there's a number of them that are, are potentially highly destructive. And I do think Dan is correct that the primary goal of the OECD tax bureaucrats is to raise tax revenue. Nowhere in their discussion do you see, well, we're going to broaden the base in this way and that way and use the money to, to reduce corporate tax rates. That, that never occurs to them. Action item number one relates to the digital economy. Uh, in particular, it bothers them that uh, intangibles like music or uh, online books or software used for businesses are being sold and, and not sufficiently taxed. And this comes up in an income tax context, but it also comes up in the context of the value-added taxes or goods and services taxes that other OECD countries uh, impose, which are similar to, they're basically complex sales taxes. The, uh, what, but probably the most problematic suggestion in the action item is they're seriously considering uh, a large, potentially as high as 30% withholding tax on uh, digital transactions. And, th and that would reduce the efficiency of, of the internet and the uh, electronic economy dramatically were they to go down that, that route. Action item number two and four are also highly problematic. Two is deemed the hybrid mismatch uh, action item, and the, the four relates to interest deductions, and, and they're interrelated. The primary concern here is that, in effect, a firm would deduct it, uh, deduct interest or some other expense 
in one jurisdiction but not included as revenue in another and, <clears throat> and in effect artificially shrink the tax base. But the risk in, in, in the case of what the OECD is proposing is precisely the opposite, that you'll end up in a situation where ordinary necessary business expenses aren't deductible anywhere. Um, <clears throat> you also have tremendous complexity involved in the kinds of things that they're proposing with respect to related party transactions and, and their anti-leverage rules. And they're also highly artificial. If, if a firm is too leveraged to suit the OECD, then the interest expense, even though it's perfectly legitimate business expense, wouldn't be deductible under their proposals. <clears throat> uh, now, there is a relatively straightforward way to get away from all this complexity related to uh, financial transactions, in particular interest, but also a lot of the problems related to intangibles. And that is to move what the Mead Commission would have labeled a, a real base tax system as opposed to a real plus financial tax system. And examples of that would include a sales tax, a business transfer tax, as proposed by uh, Paul Ryan at one point in the roadmap, but also Senator DeMint at one point and originally in Nunnaminenshi. And, and another way of doing it is the old Hall-Rabushka flat tax or the, the graduated rate uh, variant of that, the X tax. In all of these three tax reform proposals, financial transactions are irrelevant for determining a taxable base. So all this complexity goes away. So as people are considering fundamental tax return alternatives, if this discussion today is making your eyes roll over, you might want to think about tax reform proposals that don't have to make these kind of <coughs> determinations with respect to interest or other financial transactions or intangibles. <clears throat> um, action items 8, 9, and 10 relate to transfer pricing and are particularly uh, focused on intangibles. And the buzz line is they want to make the income follow the value creation, which basically means they're going to start trying to differentiate intangible source income from other sorts of income, which is basically an impossible task, and then allocate the intangible income based on allegedly real factors such as the payroll of the employees that generated the patent or, or the uh, uh, other IP. And what that really means is that there will be a strong incentive for firms to move their uh, high-skilled research and development employees to lower tax jurisdictions because the income will follow those employees and therefore you'll get a lower tax rate. This isn't really good for the United States. As Dan showed, we have a very high tax rate. Even in a, I think, positive scenario, we're going to have at best an average tax rate for some time. And uh, we don't want to adopt a series of international tax rules that are going to encourage firms to move their highest paid, most productive, most innovative employees outside of the United States. Uh, the the uh, BEPS 9 talks about uh, risk in capital, and basically if, if the corporate capital structure isn't to the satisfaction of the OECD bureaucrats, they would in effect impute a return to the capital. If it's not high enough return to suit them, they say basically, well, you should have made more money, so we're going to tax you as if you made more money. Again, you can imagine the complexity and also unfairness that that leads to. 
Uh, action item 13 relates to transfer pricing, or specifically transfer pricing documentation, and requires information sharing of proprietary information about how uh, products and intangibles, IP, were developed that is simply unprecedented and requires sharing that among uh, the participating governments and raises serious uh, concerns about industrial espionage and, and the preservation of American companies' trade secrets. <clears throat> I wanted to raise two other issues that aren't specifically BEPs, but are international tax and orientation. One is there is before the Senate right now a protocol amending the uh, multilateral convention on mutual administrative assistance in tax matters. That's a mouthful, and it sounds incredibly boring, and it's been sold as something that's incredibly boring, uh, just another tax treaty. But if you think the OPM hack of federal employees is bad, uh, you can think of that convention as basically making hacks unnecessary because the federal government will collect the information and send it to whoever wants it. And that's only a slight exaggeration because basically it requires all participating countries that are members of the convention to collect the banking, brokerage account, and insurance account, and tax information on virtually all their businesses and most of their citizens and do an annual data dump to all the other participating governments. <clears throat> the participating governments include the Russians, the Chinese, the Pakistanis, and the Colombians. Now, these governments are not particularly friendly to the United States, but they also are notably corrupt. So if you take all this private financial information that is generally the target of hackers and you just send it to the Russians, the idea that, A, that's not going to be sent over to the FSB for industrial espionage purposes is laughable. Secondly, it's highly probable, bordering on certain, that that information will eventually be provided to criminal elements that will use it for uh, nefarious purposes uh, such as identity theft. And lastly, it's virtually certain that the Russian and Chinese governments and the Pakistani governments and some of the other participating governments will use it for political purposes to identify and uh, oppress political opponents of the government. So that deserves a lot more attention than it's been getting. And, it, and it's before the Senate as we speak. Lastly, just briefly, uh, patent boxes or innovation boxes. Uh, a lot of European countries do that now. Basic, to make it simple, what they do is segregate out income from patents or other IP and impose a lower tax rate on it. It's the opposite of tax reform. It's creating another set of complex rules uh, and then providing differential rates depending on what kind of, of income it is. It's also virtually impossible to do really. You end up having negotiated agreements about the, the tax, and it, and, it, and it leads to complexity, higher compliance costs, artificially distorts the marketplace, and, and they're a bad idea, that, and we shouldn't pursue it. Unfortunately, they seem to be gaining some traction in the Congress as right now. So with that, I'll hand it over to Brian. Thank you, David. Um, 
maybe someone will get that figured out before I'm finished. Um, since I'm the only non-economist on the panel, I'm going to hopefully wake you up a little bit and talk about um, politics and um, some of the context and, and broader uh, issues surrounding BEPS. <clears throat> to begin, I think to properly understand the significance of the OECD's work on BEPS, we have to, to step back a little bit and look at the history of the OECD on international tax policy. And this is the approach I take in my uh, recent paper on BEPS, which is available in the back on your way out if you want to grab it. Um, okay, good. We got it up. All right. The most relevant place to begin is really with the 1998 report on harmful tax competition. And um, just as a brief explanation, a tax competition is something that politicians do not like, tax collectors do not like, but for the rest of us, it's an asset. That's because competition between jurisdictions puts pressure on governments to, at the very least, not raise rates so high as to cause taxpayers and businesses to flee their jurisdictions. Nations that ignore competition suffer fiscally and economically, whereas those which embrace it are more likely to prosper. It's the one, probably one of a very few political incentives actually working in favor of taxpayers and, and pro-growth policy. So for anyone but tax collectors, the, 19, the 98 report's content was very disturbing, and it laid the groundwork for almost two decades of attacks on low-tax jurisdictions. It also made clear the organization's adherence to an academic theory called capital export neutrality, and I'm sure Dan can correct me if I say anything stupid here, but it basically asserts that economic efficiency is best promoted by harmonizing tax rates. The theory's underlying assumptions are not altogether unreasonable. Capital is indeed better allocated in a no-tax environment, um, all else being equal, but all else is not equal, and it erroneously concludes that tax rates, either explicitly or in effect, should be harmonized in order to maximize growth. So where they go wrong and where adherents at the OECD go wrong is in ignoring the political effects of harmonization. Namely, that without tax competition, politicians will face fewer constraints on their ability to raise taxes. That's obviously what they want, but taxing at the level desired by your average politician is not the way to maximize economic growth. So thanks to resistance that came primarily out of the United States, the OECD backed away a little bit from openly targeting tax competition. But they regrouped and quickly um, came back under the guise of tackling, of tackling tax evasion instead of competition, and in 2000 created their Global Forum on Transparency and Exchange of Information for Tax Purposes. They do like really long names. Politically, evasion is obviously a lot easier target than tax competition. And it's provided an opportunity for the Global Forum to slowly chip away at competition while claiming to advance tax enforcement. Keep in mind that tax evasion is, a, is an extremely easy problem to solve. Lower your rates and simplify the tax code. It's really not rocket science. It's important also to note some of the tactics that they have used. They began by blacklisting jurisdictions with low tax rates and threatening sanctions and other negative economic repercussions. After they brought into the fold these wayward jurisdictions daring to set low tax rates, they then began immediately moving the goalposts. First, it was tweaking rules to get off the blacklist. 
Then it was agreeing to a certain number of tax information exchange agreements. Then it was passing a convoluted peer review process where high tax nations sit in judgment over their competitors. Likewise, likewise we've seen the so-called global standard evolve from information exchange upon request, meaning generally that some standard of reasonable cause or suspicion had to be met before financial ta tax information was changing governmental hands to the now expected standard of automatic exchange and all its obvious privacy concerns, some of which David got into. It is, in other words, a never-ending process with the OECD. Which brings us to BEPS. What conclusions can we draw about the current process based on this understanding of the OECD's history? For one, like the efforts before it, the BEPS report asserts that having, quote, no or low effective tax rates is one of the key factors to identifying a so-called harmful regime. And it also limited that governments are often under pressure to offer a competitive tax environment. Heaven forbid. Their own report, as Dan so helpfully demonstrated in one of his slides, even admitted that corporate tax revenues are not really declining, except if you look at the narrow case of the recent recession. So there's not even an identifiable problem to solve. Collecting a few wayward tax dollars here and there is not what this is really about. So number one is that this is in fact the latest front in their ongoing campaign against tax competition. The second conclusion we can come to is that this process will not end with the final recommendations or even after they've been widely adopted if they are. Businesses in the case of BEPS or low tax jurisdictions in the case of their many other efforts are sorely mistaken if they think they can just sit down and ride this out. The Treasury Department has somewhat surprisingly taken issue with a few of the more extreme and invasive recommendations coming out of Europe. And in some cases, they've even succeeded in getting them removed or toned down. Though being slightly less bad than Europe on taxes is not a whole lot of praise. But let's not kid ourselves, once the OECD wins this battle, Anything they didn't get the first time around will go right back on the table. The goalposts will move once again, as they always do. Number three, the OECD is clearly learning from its past mistakes. The harmful tax competition effort continues to inform their work. They even cite it openly in their reports from time to time. But it didn't quite play out the way they hoped the first time. This time, they aren't going to sit around and wait for the US to turn against them which is why the process has been extremely rushed for BEPS. By the end of this year, it will have gone in, gone in just three years from a vague statement from the G20 to 15 separate action items with intricate rules fleshed out by an army of bureaucrats. So why, why the rush? Why are they in such a hurry? It's about keeping the focus on the spectacle of the process itself and away from pesky questions like, is there a problem here that actually needs to be solved? Or is it worth the cost? Basically, the sort of things that an actual legislature would have to discuss. The OECD fancies itself a legislature at time, but it's actually best understood as a special interest group. Unfortunately, they're given the sort of legitimacy that a legislative body would claim, and they've certainly learned how to sell that angle. Uh, the fourth conclusion we can come to is that despite their, despite their best efforts, BEPS is not yet a done deal. 
Yes, a number of nations will immediately take and adopt the final recommendations that come out later this year. Some aren't even waiting for them to be finalized and, and have started implementing them already. But the U.S. does matter. Just like there's no OPEC without Saudi Arabia, there's no global tax cartel without the United States. And you can even see on the little timeline there that not a whole lot happened between 2000 and 2010. And the reason for that is because the United States was not as on board. And then things sped up. So that's why it's imperative for Congress to get involved in the issue. And we've seen in recent days, including a recent floor speech the other day from Senator Hatch, that that's starting to happen. Um, before I wrap up, I, I want to briefly discuss an area that uh, is not talked about as much as it should be, though I'm glad David brought it up in relation to the uh, multilateral convention. And every day we see another story about personal information or private taxpayer data being compromised by the government, sometimes even deliberately so if they're handing it to, handing it to somebody that they think they can help an embarrassing opponent. Basically, our country's cybersecurity record is atrocious. They have no clue what they're doing on cybersecurity. And not that I'm an expert, but my degree in computer science is enough for me to look at it and, and realize that nobody there has any idea what they're doing. They have no idea how to secure their networks, and if this is the United States with this problem, just imagine what the rest of the world's governments are going to face. So as it currently stands, BEPS would have companies handing over sensitive information to foreign governments, U.S.-based companies, information that is not required in any specific sense for assessing existing tax law. Um, it is instead part of what they're putting together as a global fishing expedition so that tax collectors can look at their data and eventually find new ways to conjigger the rules to get more taxes in the future. This includes often proprietary data that could compromise the advantage a firm has over their competitors. I don't think anyone actually believes this information can be protected. I know corporations are not the most sympathetic of victims, so it's easy to say, well, who cares? <clears throat> but consider it even from a national competitiveness point of view. What will it mean for an American-owned company in order to do business in the Chinese market to have to hand over their proprietary corporate information to a government that, oh, just happens to own a few of their competitors? close, I should say that none of this is to say that every single thing being proposed in BEPS is bad. Much of it might be sound policy advice. Unfortunately, the OECD isn't really in the business of giving advice. They call their output recommendations, but as any of the numerous jurisdictions which have been forced under threat to jump through their hoops for the last decade and a half can attest, they're the sort of recommendations that really can't be refused. The challenge at this stage is defending U.S. businesses and interests in a system where the policy choices of the rest of the globe can't be directly controlled. If other nations want to raid the coffers of U.S. corporations, it's not as simple as passing a law in the U.S. that says they can't. But that doesn't mean there aren't options. There are a variety of hard and soft power tools available, but before they can ever be deployed, policymakers here have to first understand and engage with the real problem and that is the OECD. And so I will now turn it over to 
one of our other economists to talk about transfer pricing. Oh, yes. <laughs> They're all excited about that. So, Dan, I like to think that I am a pretty good game theorist, um, better than the, the Greek minister, prime, uh, financial minister. Um, I'd like to prove it to you. We'll start with you giving me a loan, and we'll go from there. How about that? All right. Uh, <laughs> okay. Manual default. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, the... Yes. So as Dan showed you earlier, this is the uh, average of the OECD statutory tax and corporate income tax rates. And over the last 30 years, we've seen a general trend and that is a falling in this corporate tax rate. And in general, the reason why is that competition among small countries has increased over this period, along with the globalization. And this has happened because these multinational corporations that work in this environment are very capable of moving economic activity to where it's the least cost. And that includes taxes. So, where economic activity occurs will also determine where income is actually booked as well. And the process by which most uh, multinational corporations do this is through, of course, transfer pricing. So let's take a look at an example to help you give you an idea about how this works. Uh, let's assume that we have a microchip uh, company and its parent is located here in the US. It's where it does all the innovation, all the design. Uh, it wants to sell its microchips in France. Makes sense. But it doesn't want to have to pay the tariffs in the EU, so what it does is it sets up a manufacturing facility in Ireland and then uh, gets everything set up. So how does each one of these economic activities relate to the income that each one of these entities actually produce? Well, the only way to do this is through this concept of transfer pricing. And let me explain how it works. So the parent who has the rights to that design, sells those rights to the Irish manufacturing subsidiary, and then in return gets a payment from them. Now this is just a fictitious accounting payment, but it's booked that way. And in return, the Irish manufacturing group then manufactures the chip, transfers it to the French, and then in return, they book a price of $90 for that chip, just say. Now, the French subsidiary that does the marketing and the uh, sales of the chip then can sell it, gets $100, and in the process then creates a chain of events that determines where income is, is collected. So as you can see, uh, in France, it's $100 minus the price that they paid for the chip. It's $10. Uh, in Ireland, it's the uh, $90 minus the royalty payment and maybe any actual physical costs that they do to manufacture the chip. And then in the US, it's the $50. And in each one of those jurisdictions, they pay that income to uh, the, the government there. Now, the problem begins when they have different definitions about what is income. So it could be that the French government says that transfer price is not the real price of that good. And in fact, what it is, it's $100 minus just whatever the physical costs are, which are $10. And that's what the income is that you owe me taxes on. So at that point, that income will be double taxed across different jurisdictions. Now, the same thing could occur on the other end. So let's just say that Ireland and the US have a treaty. 
And that treaty tells you that uh, it's going to be taxed in one way in one economy and another way in a different economy, but they have different definitions about what a subsidiary and a parent uh, are. And because of that, the U.S. thinks that the Irish are taxing it, that royalty payment, the, uh, and the Irish think the U.S. is taxing it. And in, the, in this case, it gets double non-taxation. Some people like to call this stateless income. In this case, it doesn't get taxed at all. So BEPS originally came out in somewhat of a noble situation. They were saying, OK, this is what we want to stop, this double taxation and this double non-taxation. We want to help on both ends. And we're going to do this by using some of these actions that were explained to us earlier. And, and I would like to put them in three major categories. Uh, there's, there's the standardized da tax data reporting, uh, the harmonizing tax rules, which is largely how do you treat different entities, uh, and how do you deal with uh, cross-border jurisdictions. And then the last is standardizing income definitions, which I'm going to argue is one of the biggest problems here. Now, this is all good on the surface, but the problem is, is once you implement this, you create a moral hazard. And what that is is that moral hazard is you're now giving tax authorities a tool to go out and find more revenue or to a system or framework by which they can grab revenue from other states. And this becomes a major issue. So let me explain what I mean. Let's go back to our original example. So in this example, we have a situation in which uh, this is the current tra transfer pricing setup. But what if the French government realizes it has a deficit? It has the European Union knocking on their back door, saying your deficit to GDP ratio is too large. And you need to go out and find more revenue. So the tax authority goes out and uses that mandatory tax reporting information to then look at the Irish. And then they're saying, hey, you're paying a $50 payment to the US for that chip. I think that's too much. I don't think it is uh, correct, and it doesn't reflect the actual economic activity that's going on. And in fact, that should be lower. That should be a $30 payment. And at that point, it becomes a $30 payment that they can take to the courts and argue that this should be a $30 payment, that the transfer price should be 70 to the French. And now the French have more income to book than they did before and raise their tax revenue. And just and, it was a, and by doing this, they were able to raise their tax revenues. Now, this is exactly what's going on. This is exactly what BEPS wants to do. They want to move away from a system that has been used for over 50 years, that has been developed over a long period of time and works. And they want to move to a system such as apportionment, which uh, for the, all those of you who have studied the states and know about the multi-state uh, tax commission have realized that it is a very bad system. And it's largely because it uses factors that are observable to determine where income should be booked. Um, and this is a big problem because a lot of income that's actually generated in a modern economy is through intangibles, things like patents, and then other things such as it should be, if an economy is taking all the risk, it should be booking a lot more income because risk and income should be uh, commensurate with each other. So in this case, we, we have this problem in which we don't want a system that's biasing an economy uh, based on the tax. It should 
these corporations should be locating their economic activity in the jurisdictions where they have the greatest uh, um, competitive advantage. Now, and I know a lot of people will say, well, uh, the, this BEPS project, they're going to be very good at making sure that income is well-defined and that, uh, and that you know, they're going to be really careful to make sure that everything is uh, very, very clear. Well, even in their own documents, they've gone about saying that this is a difficult thing to define. Income is extremely difficult to define for these corporations. And above that, in the process of trying to define this income, we create all sorts of costs for these corporations. So in this process, they're kind of pointing out the real problem with corporate income. And that is, it's very amorphous. It's difficult to define. And in fact, it's a very bad uh, base for your, for your tax. And the reason is because is it will change. It moves, and it's easy for people to game. And in fact, the Tax Foundation just completed a profit-shifting series, and I invite all of you to, to read it. Uh, the top academics in, the, in tax law have all come and uh, done interviews with the Tax Foundation. And almost all of them have come to the point where we're saying that reducing the tax is only is the best option that we have. And in fact, some have said we should get rid of the, the corporate tax altogether because it is a tax that is difficult to define what that income base is. And that what we really should do is move away from this undefinable income tax base to something that's more definable, such as a consumption tax. And there's plenty of options that we can look into that. But uh, this is what all these academics have said, and, and I think that that is the way of the future. And certainly if we look at that first graph, uh, the market's already spoken, and that's where we're heading. 